We're getting AP psyched out for the new school year. Broward faces its own cost of living crisis and why protecting the Amazon rainforest matters here. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at South Florida heading back to school, including virtual teachers, a new Creole program, LGBTQ support, and that maybe illegal, maybe not, AP psychology course. We'll also discuss a new report that sounds alarms about the affordability emergency, not in Miami-Dade, but in Broward County. And we'll check in on this week's important Amazon summit in Brazil and why it's relevant to the dangerous heat we're feeling in Miami and everywhere else. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. If it feels like summer vacation ends earlier and earlier these days, you're right. The new school year started yesterday in Palm Beach and Monroe counties. It starts next Thursday in Miami-Dade. Broward students head back to class on August 21st. Reading and writing is hardly the only issue kids, teachers, parents, and administrators are dealing with, however. Down in the Keys, for example, an acute teacher shortage has forced schools to embark on a controversial new virtual instructor project. But because this is culture war Florida, the biggest controversies are less educational and more political. Chief among them has been whether schools under the state's so-called don't-say-gay law could teach a popular AP psychology course that, well, dares to say gay. Even reading Shakespeare has become a cause for legal paranoia in some educational circles here. And then there's that new history teaching guideline that suggests slavery in America was in fact a resume builder for the enslaved. What do you think are the important subjects to discuss as we head into a new school year? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio is WLRN's education reporter, Kate Payne. Also with us is Anna Fusco. She's the president of the Broward Teachers Union. Kate Payne, let's start with that elephant in the classroom, as it were, the AP or Advanced Placement Psychology course, which Florida school districts thought they could not offer because it teaches about sexuality and gender identity and everything the don't say gay law says cannot be taught in Florida public K through 12 schools. Then suddenly in the past week or so, we've heard the state say it's okay to offer it. What changed? And, and, and did the state essentially cave on this issue? So, yeah, there's been a, a lot of confusion um, for this class. You know, some districts decided to drop AP Psych entirely um, because the college board, the nonprofit overseeing AP, said, you know, schools cannot censor required instruction in this course and call it an AP class. Right. And the kids wouldn't get the credit. Correct. Yeah. yeah, would not be able to take the the final test to potentially earn college credit, which is the the whole drive for for AP courses. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the uh, the Department of Education, you know, putting out this guidance that uh, you know these these lessons, instruction on how sex and gender can influence socialization and other aspects of development, uh, you know, the department now says that can be taught consistent with Florida law. 
Um, so South Florida school districts are going forward with this. Um, Broward, for instance, is requiring parents to sign a consent form right. uh-huh. um, before students take this class. Sort of, a, sort of bowing to the whole uh, ethos behind the Don't Say Gay law, which is parental rights. Sure, exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and trying to sort of cover their their backs on this in case something came up, you know, right. to say that you parents, you, you agreed to this. Exactly. But was this perhaps a case of the state realizing what a bruising it just took in the national spotlight over the whole slavery has personal benefits for the enslaved mess that it made for itself? And so it didn't want to get slammed again over the AP psych thing? I mean, certainly there's been plenty of national coverage of this, you know, once again in, in Florida attracting these headlines. You know, Andrew Spar, the, the head of the Florida Education Association, you know, says he does see this as, as backtracking. Um, you know, I, I think it's helpful to compare to the handling of the AP African American Studies course, mm-hmm. um, which was also uh, targeted by, by the State Department of Education. Um, with that course, you know, as a pilot project, you know, still in the early phases of development, um, and the AP College Board uh, did make changes ultimately to that curriculum. Whereas with AP Psych, um, the College Board said, we're not changing this. You know, this yeah. instruction has been in this class for the 30 years that this course has existed. Um, and certainly there are many more Florida students and students across the country who have been enrolled in the AP Right, this is course. one of the most, if not the most popular AP course in Florida high schools, right? Yeah, it's something like 30,000 Florida students um, are signed up for AP Psych, so hugely popular class. In that regard, it seemed pretty telling that Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz Jr. suddenly backed out of a forum that was held here last night at a church in the largely black city of Miami Gardens about this slavery issue. Do you think it's beginning to dawn on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his administration that this crackdown on teaching about minority and LGBTQ people in schools here isn't playing too well with the rest of the country? I mean, for Governor DeSantis, you know, it's hard to see him and his administration backing down from this. Um, You know, he certainly has made, you know, the culture wars his political identity as he's going out and campaigning across the the country for the presidency. presidency. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's been plenty of coverage of uh, the changes he's making on his campaign, the way that he's flagging in some polls at this point. Um, But I do think the governor is, is quite calculated in his media coverage and and how he approaches some of these issues. Um, And as far as, you know, the the popularity of this, I mean, Republican states across the country have taken up, you know, what could be called Florida model legislation. Florida, Florida's hardly alone, right? Mm -hmm. Anna Fusco, as an educator, you're a former elementary teacher. Remind us why the college board, which, as uh, Kate pointed out, created the AP Psych course, insisted that the sexuality content must be included in order for students to receive the credit. And and why did the state originally say that content was prohibited? Well, the state originally said it was prohibited because, you know, there's pieces in uh, state statute and law that was put in, in favor of certain parental rights. You know, they don't take into account that it's only a select minority that want a certain thing done in our public education system. They seem to forget that, you know, it is for uh, hundreds of thousands of students across the state of Florida 
that are entitled to a free public education and they are choosing to go into the public education and they have their rights. And we have a little small minority that feel only their rights matter. And then we have a governor who is creating cultural wars, which entail, I think he wants a civil war actually, amongst people in the state of Florida and trying to bring it out across the country. And I think that there is pressures around the country that are showing that this isn't going to fly outside of Florida. And I agree with Kate. I don't think he's going to back down, but I think eventually he's going to be shut down. Right. But talking they, but, but but talking educationally about the AP site course, why would the College Board insist as an educational matter that the sexuality content must be included in the course for in order, as I said, for students to receive the credit? Because a group of educators created it knowing in the past 30 years that it's been implemented that there is educational benefits from it and it's not indoctrinating children. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that they stood their ground because a lot of people want to back down, as some of our districts did, canceled the course. And even though Broward County still is offering it, they still in some ways are on the side of caution. Well, we'll just put a waiver out there that the parents have to agree to have their children right. take this course, which it is in a high school format, which is for students that are getting ready to graduate out of high school and go into college. And they're just, they're pre-adults and they're, they are beyond their years of, of thinking capabilities and maturity levels to where right. it's never been a problem, but we have again. Right. That, 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 that's a good point. Is, 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 Ana Fusco, is this then a practical acknowledgement on the state's part that most, if not all, the high school kids, the teenagers who take this course are already going to be aware of homosexuality and transgender people. And as a result, trying to keep that out of the course feels a lot less like, quote, protecting children and, and more like just anti-LGBTQ bigotry? That You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly, that's all this is about. Our students, I'm a 30-year-plus educator, and I've taught all levels in my last uh, 15 years in the classroom. We're elementary level. And as years have gone on, I've seen the maturity level and the cognitive level and the, the, just the capabilities of our young children are so much years beyond than when I was a child and raising my own son and so forth. I mean, everything plays a role in our students' cognitive levels and our children's cognitive levels, not right. just in school. And, our, and our, the, It starts first at home with right. the parents. And then look at how social media and, and the wide variety of everything that is out there in the public besides public education. And the teacher itself in the classroom is there for one sole purpose of Loving, okay. nurturing, and teaching content right. and standards and, and that and is I, written and by I, state. Right. And Ana Fusco, since it's talk, speaking of the teachers, since you're head of the Broward Teachers Union, we're also hearing teachers, especially here in South Florida, say they want their unions to be ready to stand up for them more forcefully in the legal arena should their teaching possibly violate new state laws like Don't Say Gay. Are you and the teacher unions prepared for that fight? We are prepared. They are standing up. And I believe that one of the reasons why the pushback came was because of the Florida Education Association and all of the locals in Florida have stood up and said that we cannot continue to to happen. That was the reason why we had the forum last night in Miami Gardens. 
Broward County came out in full force. Miami-Dade came out in full force. People from the Keys came out in full force. Palm Beach came out in full force. And Manny Diaz Jr. did not show up, which he should have. That we are okay. showing that we are not okay with this. We're not going to take it. We're going to stand up. It's not just being a teacher's union. First and foremost, we are all teachers. We're all educated. And we know what is right. good and what is right for our and gone to school. We continue to go to school. And okay. we are doing what uh, we do best. And it's teach, love, and nurture. Kate, um, on a more practical level, mm-hmm. um, Broward, as well as Miami-Dade schools this week, also announced that all students will receive free breakfast and lunch this year. Why was that an important move? Well, there are so many students who desperately need to be fed. I mean, there are, across South Florida, a lot of families in need. um, And school, for a long time, has, has been the place where they get basic nutrition. Um, so yeah, this is through um, something called the community eligibility provision um, and Broward being able to um, provide free breakfast and lunch at no cost um, because so many of the students um, qualify based on uh, their their family's low socioeconomic speaks, status. Speaks to the cost of living crisis For in sure. South Florida. I'm Tim Paget. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the new school year in Fl- South Florida and the issues swirling around it. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Kate Payne, let's move south to Monroe County in the Keys, where a teacher shortage is forcing a new so-called virtual teacher program. Can, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the district is piloting this virtual teacher program. Uh, Superintendent Teresa Axford announced, you know, they'll be working with a company called Elevate K-12. And basically, um, this is because the the teacher shortage is so acute there in the Keys um, that they're running out of options of of how to have a certified teacher in front of kids. Um, So this is, you know, a, a virtual teacher who will be video calling in to the classroom um, and then there will be a, a teacher's aide and assistant right. mm-hmm. yeah who who's physically there in the classroom with students but are parents worried about the possible negative effects on teaching quality in a in a project like this I mean these are you know the really difficult decisions that districts are having to make you know for for superintendent Axford you know she said the priority was getting certified teachers in in front of classrooms and we know across the state um, with the teacher shortage you know schools are having to move in teachers who are not certified for for the class that they're taking Um, so that's the push and pull but for parents in the keys you know if if this is one of your students um, classes please please reach out to me we'd love Mm -hmm. to hear more but Ana Fusco Monroe County is not the only place in South Florida where we're seeing teacher shortages on the horizon correct oh no teacher shortages are happening all across the state of Florida all across the country it's definitely a national problem. It's not just a, a city or a county problem or a state problem. It's across the country. Mm-hmm. Our College of Education is, is depleted. Uh, students going into college don't want to get into a College of Education. There's many reasons why. Mm-hmm. One, the teacher pay has not grown over the years. It's actually decreased here in Florida when we lost our ability to get steps in 2011 under their Governor Rick Scott. And then there is just the treatment of teachers. Um, from everybody, and especially when our own elected governor and our elected officials that are elected by the people want to go out there and villainize educators, kids are watching. People are watching. Second and third career people are watching. 
that mm. why would I want to get into a profession if I can continue to be villainized? And here in Florida, there's things that they're saying, if you do or do wrong, not only can your certificate be attacked, but you can be possibly arrested. Right. Just and, for in a classroom having conversations with students that is right. curriculum that is written by our state. And Kay Payne, it's not just a teacher shortage that South Florida school districts are facing. It's a potential student shortage and declining enrollment as well. And you've pointed recently to some ways school districts here are trying to meet that challenge, such as more branded schools and programs. Can you tell us where you're seeing that? Yeah, there's lots of different ways that districts are, are trying to hang on to their students, recruit and retain them. Um, in some places, that's opening new K through eight schools is appealing to some families, and also more targeted programs. Um, you know, I, I visited a school um, in Palm Beach County yesterday where they've just launched a new Haitian Creole dual language program. It's just the second right. in the district. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's very cool. Yeah, and let, let, let's play a clip of students learning how to introduce themselves mm -hmm. in Creole. Ah, moi appelé Madame Delva, qui j'en relais. Moi des Suzy. Suzy, c'est très bien. Nous t'en déjà Suzy dit, moi j'en des Suzy. Moi relais Madame Delva, qui j'en relais. I am Delva. Moi relais Michel, ou qu'a dit ça? Moi relais Michel, dis-le pour moi. Moi relais Michel, ou dis-le? C'est très bien, bon moi Michel. Moi relais Madame Delva, qui j'en relais. <laughs> Merci, kids. <laughs> Ana Fusco, we can't end this conversation without a reminder that it wasn't just Sigmund Freud that almost got tasked out of uh, Florida's public high schools in this new school year. Shakespeare, too, looked headed for the exit this week when school officials in Hillsborough County, which includes Tampa, said they feared some of the Bard's lines might run afoul of the state's anti-sexuality edict. The state quickly said, no, 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 it's okay to teach Shakespeare. But is the point here really that paranoia, the chilling effect that the state's new laws are creating in South Florida schools? So the paranoia is real, not just for the educator, but for multiple types of uh, family dynamics. You know, kids and families alike all have their own individualities and have their own particular rights. And again, I'm gonna state this, that there's a particular small group that feel only their parental rights matter, and they wanna impose their, you know, certain religion and certain way they live their life on everyone else. When others are not doing that, they just want to, you know, be productive citizens in society, have right. the enrichment of a public education and enjoying just a good quality of life. And when all we're seeing is this cultural war being imposed yes. and, Anna, Anna, I'm so, Anna, 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 I'm sorry for time. We'll have to leave it there. I apologize. Uh, Anna you. Fusco is president of the Broward Teachers Union. Kate Payne covers education for WLRN. Thanks very much to you both. Thanks. Still to come, is living in Broward County now as unaffordable as living in Miami-Dade? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. If you tuned in last week, you may remember we discussed how the exorbitant cost of living, especially housing, is driving people out of Miami-Dade County. 
Well, no sooner had we finished that conversation when we found out Broward County, Miami's supposedly more affordable neighbor to the north, has its own unaffordability crisis. According to a new report from the nonprofit United Way of Broward, the number of so-called Alice households, meaning asset-limited, income-constrained, but employed, climbed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Almost half of all Broward County families, 46%, now live paycheck to paycheck or below the poverty line. As in Miami-Dade, even essential workers like firefighters and teachers in Broward are looking at a chasm between what they earn and what they have to spend. And as in Miami-Dade, the question is, what does Broward need to do to fix this? What are your suggestions? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio is Nasbi Chowdhury. He directs public policy initiatives at United Way of Broward. Thanks for coming in, Nasby. Thank you for having me, Tim. Nasby, is it fair to say that because we're so focused on Miami's cost of living crisis these days, we've sort of fallen into a complacent mindset that Broward County must somehow be a more affordable place for people to live? And, and if so, why was that a mistake? Yeah, well, um, again, thanks for having me on the show today, Tim, uh, representing United Way of Broward County, and uh, kudos to our friends here in Miami as well with United Way Miami. I know they released a similar report dealing with some of their statistics Mm -hmm. with the uh, Alice community here. Um, And I think it's fair to say that we definitely have a housing crisis nationally, as, you know, was reported in the last week's episode. When you talk about the median home sale price in Miami. I think the number that we came to or that was reported was over $600,000 for the median sale price. And that's fairly close to what it is in Broward, actually. Right. I I, I wanted to ask you if if that disparity was was similar in Broward. Yeah, It it is uh, fairly similar. It's a little bit less than $600,000. So I think it comes around Mm $585,000. The last time I looked at the uh, data that the county most recently reported. And the medium income then for a, a household in Broward is close to around $65,000. Okay, so yeah, we're looking at more or less the, the, the same disparity. And I think, again, I think that kind of is surprising mm-hmm. to a lot of people because they just think of Miami as being the place that has that, that kind of crisis and not Broward. What were the United Way's key findings uh, about which living costs have become especially expensive in Broward and, and the gap between those costs and what most folks earn there. I mean, we've just mentioned housing, but I know there are others. Yeah, absolutely. So we refer to a term in the report known as the household survival, survival budget. Right, budget uh, right. And that basically includes your basic cost of living. So not only housing, but uh, cost of childcare, cost of groceries, cost of transportation. Uh, if you don't have a vehicle, what that looks like for you on the month to month basis. Yeah, and let's, let's point out, I mean, we, we often gripe about how bad public transportation is in Miami-Dade County. Not much better in Broward, is it? No, no. Uh, you know, they've they've done something recently with the Broward Metro and have tried to make that more affordable. And we've seen that very beneficial to the senior community in mm-hmm. Broward County. But we can't forget about our families uh, sometimes who are uh, striped with issues when it comes to only being able to afford one vehicle as opposed yep. to two. If you have a uh, two parent household with two full time working parents. Um, so, yes, transportation is, is certainly an issue, not to mention child care. 
uh, when we're looking at parents who are working full-time, in most cases, even full-time salaried positions, the cost of childcare is uh, astronomically high in the state of Florida. And I think, you know, it's almost as close as coming into the conversation when we talk about the cost of housing and what the average rents are and the median sale price. That next conversation is certainly going to be about childcare and how that is forcing some parents to make the decision of, okay, do I want to uh, perhaps stay at home and look after my kids rather than uh, taking that job and and working full time? Who are the people in Broward most affected by this crisis? Your, Your report, for example, points out what the typical cashier in the county goes through mm-hmm. just to make ends meet. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's your essential workers. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier in uh, the my interview with Gerard, um, we're, we're looking at not only our cooks and our, our retail workers, but our waitresses. We're looking at teachers, our law enforcement, not to mention police officers and firefighters as well, yeah. uh, which, you know, we certainly want those individuals to have a place to call home and to be sure that we can drive those individuals down to Broward, Miami, Dade, uh, Palm Beach, when we talk about the Tri-County area as a whole uh, here in South Florida, and we definitely don't want to fall into a situation where we're struggling to recruit those right. individuals to come to our county, as, as I'm sure you know was, was discussed earlier when we're talking about the teacher shortage. Yeah. Uh, we could soon experience a similar shortage when we talk about uh, some of those very significant roles uh, within law enforcement. And I should mention, you, you mentioned Gerard. That's Gerard Albert III, our Broward County reporter, uh, whom you talked with about this subject earlier this week. You, f- you found that just as in Miami-Dade, housing is the biggest millstone around families' necks in, in Broward. And, sure. and as we pointed out earlier, um, you know, here in Miami, we've got a medium price of a single-family home now being more than 10 times higher than the medium household income. We've just pointed out that that gap is similar in Broward. So what do you feel Broward County is doing in terms of improving affordable housing uh, to fix that situation, if anything? Absolutely. I I think it really starts with sounding the alarm, right, which our county has already done. Uh, Kudos to our county commission uh, for bringing in Dr. Ned Murray, who you may be familiar with. He is the director of Florida International University's Metropolitan Center, and he conducted a housing needs assessment this past year in 2022, and that data has been made available countywide to really show you this is where our median sale price is for homes. This is what an average cost for a one bedroom, one bath looks like in Broward County. And these are the people that can't afford it. And when we talk about those numbers, that's close to 95% of our population that can't afford to own a home. Now, in terms of what they're doing, I think it really comes to, uh, at first, when we talk about a lot of the uh, affordable housing developments that you've seen to start to be, uh, to start to rise and start to fill up, uh, there's an incredible amount of, of shortage of units that are available that are at fair market value. Right, but that data you 
point uh, that that provides sort of a affordable housing blueprint then that, Correct. that that's uh, help helps a county navigate what it needs to do yes yeah. and that data specifically reports to the uh, number of uh, shortage of units that are available uh, that are affordable for families in Broward County right. so I think uh, you know I, I have to give kudos to the county there when they look at you know okay how can we increase the amount of units that exist uh, but then also a lot of our municipalities too uh, are, are starting to come up with some unique uh, solutions whether that be emergency rental assistance to prevent eviction mm-hmm. mitigations uh, from increasing because now post pandemic uh, we are seeing a rise in number of evictions that are being filed yeah too. I, wa- I, wa- I mean we're going to discuss the the role the pandemic played here I'm Tim Paget. this is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN we're talking about the unaffordability crisis not in Miami-Dade County but this time in Broward Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Nasby, we use the phrase living paycheck to paycheck quite often in this conversation, but what does that really mean? Your report, for example, reminds us that it doesn't take much to trigger a financial crisis in the Alice households you talk about. Correct. Uh, And it really depends on the category you fall in. For example, if you are a senior living in Broward County and you suffer from accessibility issues or, um, you know, you find out that your medication is no longer fully covered by uh, uh, certain health care plans, you have to make the decision on whether or not you are going to pay the full price out of pocket for that medication or pay the full price for your monthly bus bus pass that you, you need to have in order to uh, get to where you need to go for doctor's appointments and and other appointments across the county. If you're a, a single parent, a single parent household, and let's say your car breaks down or, or your battery dies, you have to make the decision on whether or not you want to spend the money out of pocket to pay for that car to get fixed so you can go to work, or do you pay that um, uh, cost towards child care so right. that, you know, so now you're, you're, you're having to juggle between uh, some hard choices here. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what that looks like. One emergency can put uh, an individual or a household uh, down that Alice threshold. Now, one of the things the report, your report emphasizes is that this problem became much more acute during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Why? So we're looking at uh, the name of our report is called Alice in the Cross Currents. So we're talking about a juggling act, really, of, okay, we're dealing with a historic pandemic, which has caused an insane amount of job loss, high inflation. But then we also received some federal assistance from the government when we talk about Right. I, I, they, payments. For example, programs like SNAP, you point out, um, a food aid, federal food aid program, just really didn't extend or, or, or didn't have the reach in Broward County that was hoped for, right? Well, not only just uh, SNAP, but I mean, when we talk about other um, programs, like for example, such as stimulus payments, the child uh, tax credit that was temporarily expanded, the earned income tax credit, unemployment assistance, which we saw a large increase here in Florida for us, particularly in the South Florida area. Uh, those programs as well, they just kept families afloat. Um, without them, we would are, are fairly, the data shows that they would have 
severely drowned and have further gone deeper into the Alice threshold. But uh, yes, those programs just barely kept families on their feet uh, to get through the pandemic. And now as we see them uh, no longer being implemented and no longer uh, being available, uh, we can, the data only shows and, and says that we can tend to increase a number of Alice households and families. We need to point out that the the new United Way Alice report sounds the alarm, not just for Broward County, but Florida in general. In fact, it said 45% of Florida households had income under the, quote, Alice threshold of family survival, mm-hmm. uh, which is only one point better than the 46% that it, that it is at the, at the level in Broward. Did it surprise you that the rest of Florida is feeling the squeeze as badly as we are here in South Florida? I don't think it surprises myself nor anybody that is familiar with this data or within our United Way network. I mean, this this is work that we've been doing and data that we've been collecting for over a decade. And when we look at the most recent report in 2019 uh, that was released, um, you know, the numbers are, are, are a little bit better. Um, you know, and and as we've gone through this pandemic and now we're out of this pandemic and we're analyzing that point in time data in 2021 and 2022, we've we've realized that they've they've increased a little bit. And it, as I just mentioned, could have been a little bit worse if not for that pandemic assistance. Now, speaking of Florida in general, the state legislature did pass a seven hundred million dollar affordable housing bill this year. But is is that enough or is it just merely a good start, would we say? I would certainly say it's a great start. Um, I think, you know, that $700 million, what you're referring to as the Live Local Act, uh, is certainly something that I, I hoped would have been passed uh, a, a little bit while ago. But we're glad it's it's passed now and that those additional dollars will be used not only to increase the amount of rental units across the state of Florida, but also increase uh, the incentives and the availability for home ownership as well. Now, your report, for example, directs people to an uh, Alice in Action webpage about programs, practices, and policies to improve affordability. At least in Broward County, what are the most important fixes the United Way recommends? I mean, we, we've already talked about how to improve the housing affordability crisis, but what about other ways to, to, to just make life more affordable for people in Broward County? What are the big recommendations that that webpage makes? Yeah, it. so I really enjoy that webpage because it specifically actually has a dashboard that points out the legislative districts that exist uh, within your area um, and what the numbers are specifically to that legislative district. So you can, instead of taking a 20-page report with all of this data to your legislator, you can guide them to an interactive tool that literally lets them point on their district and it shows you these are the number of Alice households that live in your uh, community. These are the individuals that, uh, this is the median income that the individuals in your community make. And it allows legislators and United Way as a whole to kind of sit down and talk about those next steps in terms of policies. One, I would mention and I would feel that our statewide United Way of Florida Association and United Way of Broward, Miami uh, as a whole would like to tackle uh, for this upcoming year is looking at the cost of childcare. Uh, really looking how to subsidize that for working families, Um, you know, and and I think that that is really something along the next lines of of what we can tackle to make life better. Nazbi Chahuri directs public policy initiatives at the United Way of Broward. Nazbi, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Tim. Still to come, 
why helping to preserve the Amazon might be as important here as protecting the Everglades. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Something pretty important took place this week in Belém, Brazil, that was also pretty important here in South Florida or any place feeling the dangerous effects of global warming this summer, meaning pretty much the whole planet. Brazil and seven other South American countries held their first Amazon summit in 14 years. That matters because they're the ones ultimately responsible for protecting the Amazon rainforest. And that matters because the Amazon, the world's largest tropical rainforest, sucks up a huge chunk of that greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide, that's largely responsible for global warming. In other words, we rely heavily on the Amazon to help prevent full-out climate change catastrophe. And because our own important ecosystem, the Everglades, is also a big carbon dioxide vacuum cleaner, we here perhaps ought to understand better than most folks the urgency of preserving the Amazon. Do you agree, or do you think the Amazon is a faraway concern that's not our concern? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Dr. Tracy Devine-Guzman. She's a professor of Latin American and Global Indigenous Studies at the University of Miami and an expert on Brazil and the Amazon. She's also the author of the book Native and National in Brazil. Tracy, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Tim. Tracy, the gathering in Brazil was a revival of sorts of the Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization that was started decades ago, but it's been essentially dormant, if not dead, for the past 14 years. How important is it that Brazil and these seven other South American countries are bringing it back to life at this particular moment? It's absolutely critical that it's made it to the world stage uh, through news outlets. I think part of the progress uh, in this regard is symbolic. Uh, As you know, there were not key agreements made on deforestation, on on petroleum, which are very disappointing, I think, to environmentalists and people who care about the environment worldwide. Right. No, no No real goals were set at this summit, unfortunately, right? Unfortunately, they failed to make those goals. Yeah. Yes. So I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You, you. you were making another point about uh, what they should have been doing? But, but however, uh, to look at the glass half full, I think on the level of, of symbolism that it is extremely important that they convened at this moment and that President Lula has um, leveraged his influence in the region to, to get people at the table, even if they fell short of what one would hope would uh, be aspirational goals in 2023 that would make sense for everyone right. Uh, not only in the Amazon, but as you you mentioned in your opening remarks around the world, including in South Florida. The Amazon rainforest suffered some of its worst deforestation ever during right-wing Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro's administration, which ended last year. Just how bad was it? Uh, 2020 was a devastating year for for the Amazon. Uh, We were losing at that point uh, of... a soccer field of of rainforest per minute. Um, wow. Calculated over the year, that would be a, a country about the size of Portugal. 
And so those devastating effects um, are, are still being felt. Of course, um, in, in 2023, it's going to take a long time to recover from that devastation. Mm-hmm. Now, Bolsonaro's successor, whom you just mentioned earlier, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, seems to be reversing the damage. Last month, there appears to have been two-thirds less Amazon deforestation than there was in July of 2022, last year. Lula has also set a target of zero Amazon deforestation by the end of this decade. But what really has to be done to your mind, not just by the Brazilian government, but governments around the world, including the U.S., to restore the Amazon rainforest to the global carbon dioxide eliminator it once was? And is, and is that, that even possible? I think it actually is possible, but there has to be the political will to implement um, policies when they're made, and there has to be accountability um, for the the governments that are putting these kinds of policies into place. Um, Deforestation, of of course, is is a a primary issue that needs to be met, not only by uh, Brazil, but by the holders of tropical rainforests around the world. But I think just as important, if not more important than deforestation, we have to talk about reforestation. And we have to look at places around the world that have implemented reforestation successfully and uh, have to look at the the sustainability of that reforestation over time and not, you know, pivot away um, from those places to make sure that those forests that have been uh, uh, re-instituted maintain uh, their 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 centrality to these plans. No, no, no. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, that, that aspect of it. Thank you. Now, you were in the Amazon last year near the city of Manaus. What was your impression of the state of things that, that you saw up close and personal? Um, of course, at that moment, we were on the cusp of the election, and so the, the rainforest was being kicked around as, uh, you know, political uh, fodder. Right. Um, and competing interests, which are, of course, always economic development versus sustainability yeah. um, and the well-being of, of marginalized communities that are receiving the impact of, of deforestation at a much greater level than than people, for example, in, in other parts of the country. Um, the... The centrality of, of the Amazon to Brazilian politics, I think, comes to the fore at these political junctures. And unfortunately, I don't think there's a sustained, concentrated effort after um, summits like the one that just happened, after election season uh, Mm -hmm. is over, when people go back, you know, to the the necessities of of their own lives, understandably. And so part of the challenge, I think, is maintaining the interest, excitement, education, uh, around these issues and showing people what they have to gain and what they have to lose if people do not prioritize uh, the well-being of the Amazon and of the natural world more more generally. Yeah. And, and, and along those lines, how do we make more people outside the Amazon, whether it's here in Miami or in China, uh, appreciate how important that rainforest is to prevent global warming from getting even worse than what we've experienced this summer. I mean, there is a case to be made, for example, that there's a relationship between the degradation of the Amazon and sea level rise on Miami Beach, is there not? Absolutely the case. As you mentioned, um, just like a lot of the environmental crises that that we're facing nowadays, um, you know, the, 
the impact of climate change, of sea level rise, of contamination, doesn't necessarily respect national borders, right? Um, These are issues that transcend national borders. And so it, again, um, becomes a sticking point when we think about why these countries were unable to agree on a consensus with regard to deforestation, the, the issue of sovereignty comes up again and again. And so, you know, those of us um, who uh, who follow these issues and who care about these issues need to remind those who govern us that climate change and sea level rise do not necessarily abide by uh, the, the mandate of sovereignty and that these issues are issues of humanity uh, and of the natural world and not necessarily of political entities Right. A new kind of globalization. Yeah. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about this week's Amazon Summit in Brazil and its importance here. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Tracy, you're an expert on the indigenous communities in Brazil, and they play a critical role in protecting the Amazon. Is Brazil and the rest of the world doing enough, though, to protect them? Violence against the Amazon's indigenous is is at alarming levels these days. And I know, for example, there's some new legislation in Brazil that could be a big setback for their communities, correct? Uh, The state of indigenous well-being during the Bolsonaro regime was devastating. And the legacies of that devastation, you know, um, continue on in, in many ways. Uh, they will take time to reverse the the damage that was done during that administration. However, one very important thing that that the new administration has done was to institute a ministry of indigenous peoples, which is headed up by Sonia Guajajara, who is um, a, an indigenous activist who has been very vocal about environmental concerns for for decades. Um, and so, the demarcation of indigenous lands has been at the forefront of indigenous um, yeah. demands in Brazil and elsewhere in South America uh, over the last you know, 30 years. It's very well documented that the carbon loss uh, inside indigenous um, organized or indigenous run territories is not representative of what goes on outside of those areas. And so it's very documented that indigenous peoples are good stewards of the land. And so that in addition to indigenous policies that need to be respected by the states and, of course, by all of the signatories to international conventions that protect indigenous rights, indigenous peoples have a lot to teach um, other people who care about the environment, about how to be good stewards of the land. You told me a few years ago that you thought South Floridians should feel what you call a special sense of connectedness with efforts to preserve the Amazon and protect the indigenous. And that's largely because we've got our own special ecosystem here to protect, meaning the Everglades. And like the Amazon, the Everglades itself is a major carbon capturer. And so it, too, plays a a role in counteracting climate change. As a result, Tracy, should South Florida politicians, for example, play a more vocal role in persuading the U.S. to be more involved in Amazon rainforest preservation, including getting Congress to approve the $500 million President Biden recently pledged to the Amazon fund? Absolutely. Absolutely, they should. Uh, I, I have a lot of ideas for South Florida politicians and what they should be doing these days. <laughs> uh, that shall remain, uh, you know, for a later conversation. But absolutely, that's the priority. And also, I want to to point out that, um, of course, 
the indigenous peoples of South Florida have been at the forefront of protecting uh, the Everglades as well. You know, the, the Love the Everglades movement right. was founded by Houston Cypress, who is an Amikasuki uh, environmental activist, among many other roles. Um, and South Floridians would do well also to pay attention to their indigenous neighbors and to work in collaboration with them for the well-being of our shared community. I should also point out, I mean, there, recent in recent elections, we've seen indigenous candidates in Brazil get elected to Congress. Is, is that improving the situation? I mean, you mentioned, for example, this new ministry that President Lula has created has the election of more indigenous candidates in Brazil started to, to improve things in this aspect? To the extent that those issues can be made more visible to a broader population, I think that's absolutely the case. You know, it's really interesting. Just earlier this week, the 2022 census was published. It was it lagged because of funding issues and so forth under the Bolsonaro regime. The, the, the numbers were just put out earlier this week. And what it showed was between 2010 and 2022, there was an 88% increase in the number of indigenous people in Brazil, what used to be point. Four percent of the population is now 0.8 percent of the population. And that's not just demographics. That's actually partly a result of the way people think about themselves and the way that people are empowered to identify themselves rather than having somebody tell them who they are. Um, and so to the extent that indigenous people have a position of more visibility and respect in public right. discourse in Brazil, I think there's an increased likelihood of identifying mm-hmm. in that way, which has a net positive influence. Um, right. for environmental issues. Tracy Devine Guzman is a Latin America and Indigenous Studies professor and a Brazil and Amazon expert at the University of Miami. Tracy, obrigado como siempre. Obrigado, Tim. Boa tarde. Finally on the roundup, there's one team left from the Americas in the Women's Soccer World Cup being played in Australia and New Zealand. And no, that team is not the U.S., it's not Brazil, it's, well, take a listen. Now, I know that Radio Caracol announcer was a little shy and reserved, but you probably understood that he was calling a goal by Colombia. It was, in fact, a strike by star Colombian forward Linda Caicedo, an 18-year-old who just recently recovered from cancer. That goal helped Colombia knock out Germany, the number two ranked team in the world. Now Colombia has advanced to the World Cup's quarterfinals. The Colombians, known as Las Cafeteras, will play number four ranked England tomorrow at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. But as I said, they've already shown they can beat number two. Suerte Mujeres, here in South Florida, we're all behind you. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias. Merci. Obrigado.
WLRN Public Media.